1: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We will be joined a little bit later as well by Duke coach Chris Pollard, and we're going to get into the 2018 Athens Regional with Coach Pollard. Of course, a, a big moment in the Duke program as they go down to Athens and play a, a classic regional uh, that Winds up being something of a maybe not a turning point, but a, definitely a galvanizing moment uh, for for the Blue Devils program. But we'll get into that in a little bit, uh, Joe. It's uh, it's a beautiful day. It's supposed to be Super Regionals weekend. We're uh, we're, we're rolling along with our, our series of, of watching these these classic games because we don't we don't have any current college baseball to uh, to fill our time with.
2: Yeah, you're telling me. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it's funny how last weekend, or the week we, leading up to last weekend was rainy here. And I know that was the case in other places. And that made it feel like regionals weekend. And this week, we've had a couple days yesterday and today that have been summertime hot. Like it was like 90-something here yesterday. And that kind of makes it feel more like super regionals in Omaha. It's funny how that works. and And I think part of it is because regionals you're trying to play two games every single day and a little bit of rain uh, or lightning more specifically can really throw off that scheduling and super regionals you're really only trying to squeeze in one game a day so that probably has something to do with it but I don't really associate long rain delays in with super regionals I'm sure I know there have been some clearly but uh, or games just getting moved back by a day. I guess that's the other thing you can do in Super Regionals, if you're, especially if you're a Friday, Saturday, Sunday Super Regional. So I don't really have that association, but I do have that association with oppressive heat, and uh, certainly with with Omaha as well. So it's it's funny how meteorologically we're we're so just in tune. Those of us who who follow the sport and cover the sport are so in tune to kind of what's going on around us meteorologically, based on the college baseball calendar. That's just kind of a funny little. A funny little thing that I think about about this time every year, uh, just how the, how the weather means what time it is in college baseball, which, you know, that even goes back to the beginning of the season where I used to joke about when I lived in Houston, that right when it gets the coldest it's been all year, that means college baseball's here. And of course it didn't get really ever get that cold for any stretch of time in Houston, but oftentimes our coldest days were in February. And so I would always just joke that if if we have a cold snap coming, it must mean college baseball is right around the corner. So it, that's just kind of funny how that stuff kind of works.
1: Last year, I uh, I got the help, also kind of the hindrance, but but the help of a, a rain delay while I was getting to Super Regionals. I was going to Starkville, and my flight from Atlanta to Starkville was massively delayed. And I'm now no, I guess you know initially I was thinking maybe it was because there were storms moving through the South, but I now think that it was more of a mechanical issue with the plane and it was delayed for like hours. And I was like already cutting it close to get there. I was flying in day of because super regionals week is a very busy one typically. And um, you know, I, the draft was going on this time last year. And so there was, I, I was, I was flying in, you know, day of game one, and but because it was raining in in Mississippi, I wound up uh, the delay did not did not cost me any any innings, any game time. So, uh, you know, last year, I, I you definitely will get caught in some rain delays in in supers. There there may be less. I think we we think about them a little less because you can find a, a window to play the game. You're playing one game in one day. Uh, or one game a day for for three days like you can you can find the windows to do that whereas at a regional if you get pushed back like all of a sudden it's a really late night and are you pushing games into the next day and then what does that mean for for the schedule going forward and everything and I so I think people get a lot antier uh around regionals weekend versus supers but you know of course the I believe that you know one of Brady sinners like lasting images in college baseball happens in uh in a super when you know it keeps raining uh in Gainesville and he is very, very mad that the umpires are sending them into rain delay in like a torrential downpour and he uh he lets loose a tirade, you know, coming off the field. So we definitely get rain in Supers. Uh it's a fact of life that this time of year. But uh yeah, it's uh it's a little bit different and, and you know that the the looseness of the format, or, or or the ability to to work around rain in the in the format, is actually one of the advantages of the the three game best of three model, which is something that the people uh, brought up when I was reporting the the story about uh, you know in, in coaching confidential coaches favoring a best of three format and thirty two hosts for the NCAA tournament, th- you know until you reach Omaha. Um, just that you don't have to worry about the rain as much if you're only trying to play one game in one day. And, you know, that, that's a real, uh, it's a real consideration this time of year uh, throughout a lot of the country.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's really not something I, my mind goes to when we, when we talk about that, that idea. I do think one of the things that could be a real positive with that idea that I, that I think about when I think about super regionals and, to be clear, as I say this, I've not done a full accounting of whether or not I really find this to be the case. This is just kind of a hunch, but I seem to remember it. I think if the format allows for this, I feel like in Super Regionals, I remember more singular moments that have happened and Regionals sometimes either runs together or I just remember a team's run. Like what we'll talk about uh, with Chris Pollard, we'll talk about the 2018 Duke run in the Athens Regional. I will definitely remember that team's run similarly in 2018 Mississippi State has a crazy run in a super in a a regional I'll remember that and I'll probably remember in that case Elijah McNamee's home run in 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 the game against um, Florida State but in super regionals more generally I think I remember more moments you know I think of the the Cohen walk-off grand slam for UCSB against Louisville so I remember walk-off hits for TCU and those A&M super regionals now those super regionals run together but that's a whole separate thing but I think the format allows for singular moments to stand out a little more because in a regional, unless you're having a, a singular moment in game seven of a regional or in the regional final, if you're the, the team that's in the, the winner side of it, there's always whatever's next. So you can have a really great moment in game six of a regional if you're the loser's bracket team, but that mean, just means you have to come back for game seven. So maybe that's part of it too. But But certainly what I love about Super Regional Weekend is – one the format allows you to really chew on the each individual matchup and so we talked about this with Mike Rooney i think in our in our preseason podcast or on a, i don't know i forget sometimes i forget the conversations we've had with runes on the podcast versus just generally in life but that the format really kind of allows you to really chew on these matchups a little bit whereas regionals and part of the reason i love regionals is the kind of the randomness of it but it doesn't really allow you to really to really focus on any particular 1v1 matchup between two teams, Super Regionals does. And that's one thing that format has going for it. And if we expanded that, I think that would certainly, that part of it would be a positive for college baseball. But So I think that's my my takeaway with Super Regionals is, is just these singular moments I think that stand out to me, these great finishes that stand out to me. And yes, there have been some underdog teams that, that stand out as having, you know, done it in Super Regional, Stony Brook, Kent State in the, in the same year, as a matter of fact. But for the most part, I think I remember moments more so than specific runs that teams have made.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You know, you, you think about the walk-offs, I think, in Supers a lot um, because there are few things in college baseball more exciting than, you know, a walk-off into a dog pile to go to Omaha. Um, you know, obviously Sam Cohen's Grand Slam at Louisville and we talked with Austin Laneworthy about his walk off to send Florida, uh, you know, back to Omaha against Auburn, and uh, you also have to think about these uh, these TCU and AM. and uh, It seemed like for a few years there, they were matched up in supers every single year, and every single year they delivered a classic. Uh, you know, so the, the the super regional round is is just a great weekend for college baseball. It's a great celebration of college baseball. You have these eight host sites and everyone can really focus in on the 16 teams and, and, and what they're doing. And, uh, you know, they, they just produce so so many of these special moments because, you know, it's the, the players are, are doing this on their home field in front of their home fans who are, you know, very excited to, to watch them, uh, you know, push through to Omaha. I remember, you know, last year uh, in Starkville, what a special moment it was when Mississippi state, you know, wins that game against Stanford to to go through, and, and the way that it happened, uh, you know, it was clear they were winning. You know, as as the game goes into the ninth inning, and um, Jake Mangum happened to be leading off the inning, and so everyone got to everyone in the new dude got to give Jake, you know, his you know his send off for his final uh, at bat in uh, in Starkville, and Elijah McTominay, another senior hits a home run in his final at bat in Starkville. It was, uh, th- those are, those are incredible, incredible moments that I'll never forget. And, uh, you know, just the atmosphere in the ballpark is, is so special during Super Regionals weekend in a way that you don't get during regionals uh, because, you know, it, the, the format is just a little more extended and, uh, you know, there are games where the home team is not playing and uh it's just a little more charged up in a super. There's more on the line and, and it just, it, you, you feel it. And so I have come to really like super regional weekend. It also doesn't hurt that typically it happens after the draft. Uh, Now, I guess that probably won't be the case going forward. It wasn't supposed to be the case this year, but uh, I know me personally, I, I generally breathe a little easier after the draft passes It's just one thing less that I'm trying to focus on and and manage and and keep up with. And uh, so we get past the draft, we get to supers and everything's just a little easier and and you can really focus on, uh, you know, what's going on and and who is, uh, who's punching their tickets to Omaha throughout the weekend.
2: It's funny you mentioned the atmospheres, because I, I remember there was a time, you know, this is before I'd ever been to the College World Series. And that is kind of as I've gone my attitudes toward that have changed a little bit but there was a time where as just a fan i preferred super regionals to the college world series just from an entertainment standpoint because i liked the flavor you get from being at a campus site and sometimes yes I, that it's better in some places than others there were certainly super regionals that were just underwhelming atmospheres but for the most part, you're getting the best atmospheres that college baseball has to offer, even in places maybe you didn't expect just because, hey, if this is your time to shine as a baseball program, there's not a lot going on in the campus community at that time, so people are going to turn up, you know. And so, you know, I always enjoyed that weekend maybe more than the College World Series because, you know, you you get to Omaha, and now what I know about Omaha having been there is you, you really get it once you've been there and once you've been a part of what that is for college baseball. So this is no longer the case now, but, you know, Super Regionals were just such a great, I thought, showcase for the sport because it's the, in a lot of cases, it's the best facilities and the best teams and the best atmospheres. And I always missed once Super Regionals were over those campus atmospheres and those campus facilities just from a a viewer and fan standpoint. So I'd never really thought of it that way, but, but I think you're right. I mean, I think that's one thing that Super Regionals provides Regionals are a whole different animal, but the Super Regionals, you know exactly what time the games are going to be, at least in theory. You know what time your team is going to be playing, because so that's the other thing. You you kind of alluded to it there a little bit, but what can happen is you're a host team and then you choose what time you want to play early or late on Friday. Most hosts choose late for the sake of getting people in the ballpark and making it easier for fans. There are arguments for the early game, of course, including weather. But you, So you play the late game Friday night, whoops, you lose that game. Now, your fans really weren't banking on coming back for a 1 p.m. game on Saturday. Maybe they already had plans. So that's kind of tough there. So um, Super Regionals provides the, at least in theory, to begin the weekend, the certainty of you know your team is going to be playing at this time, and you know exactly what's going to be at stake in every single game. So um, that's obviously lends itself to being... Great, and it's part of you know the argument for doing that throughout the entirety of the of the postseason. So I so I get that, but um, but yeah, no super regionals, just a great weekend, like a true like college baseball at its very best on campus sites, and so certainly that's what we're missing this weekend.
1: Having you know said what I said about atmospheres, like I, I think it is also probably important for me to acknowledge that I have historically been for uh, neutral site super regionals, but I'm moving against that um the more we get the the facility boom like the the more we see from the facility boom that if you know mississippi state and florida and oklahoma state and now i guess binghamton are going to commit 60 million dollars to on-campus baseball facilities and uh you know you have what arkansas has and lsu has and Texas and a and and, you know, all this whole long litany of these, these amazing venues throughout the country. I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm much more on board with the idea of keeping, you know, these games on campus for the fans, uh, you know, to, to see them played in so that you can get, you know, a, a beer shower in Oxford, you know, that, that you can get the left field lounge in Starkville. Um, you know that 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 you can get you know all of these these things. You you can get you know Oregon State playing at home in Corvallis, and um, you know what that means. And so I, I I think that you know where where I previously liked the idea of spreading things out, um, you know letting neutral sites you know dictate you know just just take away some of the the difficulties of of uh you know travel potentially or you know whatever um eliminate some of the randomness uh the, especially now that we're seeding one through 16 also like i I think that that takes away and you know i'm also now just a little more open to uh the idea that you earned home field advantage whereas before i think i was a little more on the like what kind of you know i, I being a little more uneasy about just the, the, the pure home field advantage at that level of the tournament. But again, just with the way that the programs are investing in these facilities and the way that they've come along, I, I think that having them on the home sites is uh is superior to playing them, you know, in what probably would have been mostly minor league ballparks.
2: You bury the lead a little bit there. Uh how many years do you think it'll take Binghamton to host a super regional? Two, three? four maybe but the i mean that's that's of everything you said there i'd like to confirm that binghamton will be hosting a super
0: regional soon
1: uh you know in a 32 host model you know like let's get let's get that going and then let's see like just how many weekends in a row binghamton can host you know it does make um, it interesting so like, i'm here for that <laughs> well yeah
2: clearly me too like that is an interesting thing not to get us off on a completely different tangent here but it, it will make it interesting in a 32 host model just for the sake of, of ease of the discussion. So they'll pair them up basically like they do now, but it'll be one, four, and then two, three. And then the two would be, I guess, in the pole position to host, but you know, you do start, I know it's not as much of an, an issue as it was in a previous version of college baseball, but there are some two seeds that wouldn't necessarily be in a position to host. And you just wonder if, you know, that's a situation where Bingham Tinger three and, you know, do you, there, I, I just, there, there are going to be more situations where maybe the host is not as cut and dry. And I know part of that's the bid process and that they're probably not awarding a two-seed and a potential host to, to a, a, a school they're unsure of as far as the facility situation goes. But But it does really open up the door to some situations where, you know, what, what do we do about this matchup necessarily or how do we have to slot these teams in because suddenly the, the host discussion has to be about 32 places and not 16 places. And I'm here for that conversation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, this is not a roadblock to that plan. I just, that that will be an interesting piece of that. I know I'm not covering new ground here, but I've, I've always thought that's kind of going to be kind of a fascinating part of any sort of plan uh, that puts 32 hosts in play.
1: Yeah, that is something that I can't say that I've really talked about with people is that, okay, what happens if both teams are upset, <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, you, you still see that happen now. Uh, and they figure it out.
2: Yeah, it Santa Clara Super Regional, Cal and Dallas Baptist.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I remember, oh, man, I was gonna say I remember this. And now I, I I don't remember it. And I have to look it up. But when VCU made it to supers, you know, they ultimately went down to Coral Gables. But there was a time in that where it did not look like, like Miami was on the ropes. Oh yeah, it was against Columbia. Columbia forced a game seven against Miami. And I remember, you know, talking with people in the office, like, okay, Columbia and VCU, who is hosting that super regional? And it didn't come to pass Miami beat columbia 21 to three in game seven um you know probably one of the, the highlights of the al golden era i think that would have been um you know putting up 21 and a must win must win game uh holding your opponent to three just a, a great win by al, al golden's football program there yeah
2: good team win
1: yeah and just uh you know everyone contributed but anyway it, if that had come to pass columbia versus vcu i don't know what they would have done I guess VCU probably hosts, but, you know, again, VCU like, shares a minor league ballpark. I don't know if their minor league ballpark was available that weekend. So, you know, but they were the four and Columbia was the three. Anyway, so the, the point is these things can happen now. They'll get figured out. I don't think that that should be an impediment, but it could make for some interesting situations. I I would fully acknowledge that.
2: Yep. Yeah, you have to imagine that's a situation, if that had come to pass, a situation where you know, Columbia is doing a lot of calling around. I mean, one of the benefits of being up in the Northeast is that things are so compact that, you know, there there are tons of minor league facilities up there and it would just be basically whoever's doing the, you know, the logistics for that, just open up the Rolodex and go alphabetically and try to find, you know, the, the first minor league park that's willing to, to put it on, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, within the city of New York, you have four options. You know, Staten right. Island, Brooklyn, and then the two big league ballparks.
2: Right. Yeah. So I, yeah, that would have been that really would have been something though. You talk about putting college baseball in some non-traditional locales. Boy, that would have been something, huh? And New York City regional, or super regional? That would regional, have
1: been. That would have been awesome. Yeah, but, no doubt. Uh, Miami again. Miami had to not, go and win that all game, of twenty-one to thirty. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, it, it, speaking of you know some of these non-traditional locations, you know Duke. Right now, we don't think of them that way. You know, they, they're a team that finished the 2020 season as a top 10 team. They're ranked in the top 15 of our never too early 2021 rankings. They've become just a very consistent top 15-ish type of team over the last few years. But while that's true now, that really wasn't true just a couple years ago. And, you know, in in 2016, Duke finally makes the NCAA tournament after a 45-year drought, one of the longest droughts uh, in the sport. And then they come back in 2018 with an incredible season. They're, you know, setting program records for wins, and uh, they're in the mix in the ACC, and, you know, they get back to a regional, and they get sent down to to Athens uh, host. Host, uh, hosted by Georgia with, with, with Troy as your three and Campbell as the four. And they play just an incredible regional down there. Uh, really a, a classic weekend, almost from start to finish. Just the, the way that, that whole thing unfolded is, is a great one. So we wanted to, uh, to bring Duke coach Chris Pollard on to, to talk about that. You can uh, watch the final game of that regional online. It's on YouTube right now. The NCAA actually just put it up last weekend as a part of their um, package of games that they were showing on, on again, what should have been regional weekend. They, they showed this. We found it a few months ago, but the point is it's very findable on YouTube right now. So if you're interested in watching uh, this game seven between Georgia and Duke, uh, you, you can check that out on YouTube and, um, you know, we're going to talk with uh, with Chris Pollard uh, uh, all about that and, and what that meant for for Duke. So uh, let, let's uh, let's get right to that interview now. Today on the Baseball America College Podcast, we're excited to be joined by Duke coach Chris Pollard. Uh, coach, it's uh, it's rare that we have everyone on the podcast in Durham, but not in you know a room together. We're all we're all doing this uh, remotely, but uh, you know we are. We are all in uh, here, here in North Carolina, enjoying some beautiful sunshine. Just it, this has been a strange spring overall, of course, for everyone. How uh, how have you been kind of managing with uh, with everything that that you know has come at you this spring?
0: Well, thanks for having me on, Teddy. I, you know, I think by and large, the way we've been trying to cope is is like you do in our sport, which is to, to stay in the present moment, uh, to focus on things that you can do to position yourself uh, for the future and not get caught up a lot in what's already happened or thinking about what could have happened or, you know, kind of lamenting over a season that could have been. It's, as you and I were just talking before the call started, It's it's been about trying to mobilize uh, to get ready for the draft, uh, to to get our arms around the, uh, the extra year of eligibility that's been granted to our athletes, which is a great thing, but definitely c- creates some logistical and roster challenges. And, uh, you know, really working to try to get ready for what we hope and expect is going to be a great uh, 2021 season.
1: One of the highlights for the Blue Devils this season was, you know, Bryce Jarvis and everything he was doing for you at the front of the rotation. And now next week, he uh, he may become a, a first round draft pick. He's developed a lot at, at Duke over the last few years. What do you feel like you've seen in terms of just his his growth since uh, since he arrived at, at at the program?
0: Well, the things he's always had in his repertoire, two really good swing and miss off-speed offerings, a terrific change up and a swing and miss slider. He's always had elite mound presence, elite competitiveness, arguably the most competitive pitcher I've ever coached. But what he's done is really develop the fastball from a velocity perspective and think he'd be one to tell you that a lot of that development's come from work he's done on his body. You know, he's added 30 pounds since he walked in the door of the program and just become a more physical presence out there on the mound. It's allowed him to not only have a velocity spike, but learn how to, to maintain that velocity over the course of an outing. To me, of all the impressive things that he's, he did this past spring, if you go back to the Cornell game where he pitched the perfect game, Know, his last fastball of the night which was I think his 92nd or 93rd pitch of the night uh, was registered at 95.6 on TrackMan, and you know to be able to hold uh, his velocity that early in the season for that long really is a credit to his work ethic and and the time he's put in. But he's always been an elite competitor, and I think that's what's going to really serve him well at the next level.
2: Before we move ahead to talking about the 2018 postseason and the Athens Regional specifically, I actually wanted to go into the past a little bit. And when you arrived at Duke, it was a little bit of a blank slate. There just hadn't been a lot of success there in, in the recent history when you got there. So what attracted you to that challenge specifically?
0: couple of things. N- number one, it, it's an a, it, it's one of the world's best academic universities to recruit to. Uh, I think any time that you can pick up the phone and talk with a prospective student athlete or, or, or his family about the opportunity to pursue a Duke degree, there's instant credibility. Um, the opportunity to compete in the Atlantic Coast Conference and, and play week in and week out against some of the best in our sport. So it's a really, really unique combination of academics and athletics. The, the biggest things that, that we fought against initially arriving at Duke were some facility limitations and the lack of tradition. And over the course of the eight years that I've been in Durham, you know, we've been able to address both the facility piece but also we've worked hard to establish our own traje- tradition and, and show the trajectory of the program. And, and so now I, I think top recruits out there across the country are looking at Duke as a, as a destination school for baseball.
1: You, you, uh, when you take the job, Duke is on this very long regional drought that you snap in 2016 uh, at 45 years, finally getting uh, the Blue Devils back to the NCAA tournament in terms of building to a point where you can go out and win a regional and you know take these steps that you take in 2018, how important was you know doing what that team in 2016 did?
0: It was huge. You know, we we had to crash through that glass ceiling. You know, we had to get that not to use two cliches in the same sentence, but we had to get that uh, you know, monkey off our back that the that the Duke program couldn't get to the postseason, and that's what that 2016 team accomplished. You know, they were able to uh, to break that drought and get the program, you know, back in the postseason conversation. We didn't play great in that Columbia Regional, but we got there, and, and that took the pressure off and allowed for, uh, you know, the success that we've had in 18 and 19 and even uh, the, the short success we had in 20.
2: So then, moving ahead to the the, the Athens regional in, in 2018 didn 't start great for you guys you You lose to Troy in the opener, you get behind eight to one to Campbell and then you you have a lightning delay and so I'm curious what the conversation was around the team when you when you had that break was forced upon you and if you felt like in hindsight that that was the thing your team needed at that point, maybe it was a little bit of a reset I'm curious where where you were at in that moment
0: well it, it's a moment i 'll never forget. And you were right that that team through the first 15 innings of that regional had performed miserably by, by our, our standards for that 2018 team. It was shut out with a really good offense in the first game. Uh, we, were, we were down eight to one in the sixth to Campbell, a team that we had beaten in two contests in 2018. We had beaten Campbell 15 to one. Uh, a combined score uh, over those two games. And we found ourselves down eight to one. And, you know, it it was a really emotional locker room when we went into the lightning delay in the sixth. A a lot of uh, head in hands. Uh, I saw guys openly sobbing in the locker room. And, you know, there was a, there was a, a, just a, a fog over the entire room. And, kind of just gave guys their space for the first 20 or 25 minutes of the lightning delay and and didn't really say a whole lot, let guys just kind of digest it. It was a veteran team. And I think they were staring, you know, squarely in the face of, of having a season, a dream season where we'd set a school record for wins, a school record for conference wins. And they were looking at that all coming to an end in a really disappointing fashion. And I'd love to tell you that I had some type of, you know, win one for the Gipper type of speech that rallied us and, and we came out of the locker room just on fire. But honestly, you guys, um, I, I just told them I was proud of them and that regardless of what happened over that final three innings, that they had accomplished a lot. And I wanted them to go out and, and play that final three innings as as uh, as loose as possible. I wanted them to to hold their heads high. And I wanted them to represent the program in the right way and continue to play hard uh, through that adversity. And I do remember saying this. I said, you know, may, maybe something amazing happens. Maybe it doesn't. But we're going to walk out of here uh, with our heads up. And, um, and then just to see how the, the next three innings and especially that ninth inning unfolded uh, was, was kind of, you know, storybook kind of stuff
1: yeah something amazing definitely did happen you, you end up scoring I believe it was 11 runs in the ninth inning is there anything in your career that that is comparable to that or, or that you you were even you know just watching baseball you remember seeing anything quite like that
0: no I mean if I'm answering that honestly no I've never I can't remember being on either side of of that type of ninth inning uh, certainly had some ninth inning comebacks, and 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 I can tell you I've been on the wrong end of some of those too, where we've blown some ninth inning leads. But you know we were down to uh, two outs. Uh, we we had a, a runner first, so we had two two outs left to play with. We had a runner at first and one out. And I remember we hit a ground ball single through the right side that could have been a ground ball to end the end the baseball game. It was a perfect double playground ball but it snuck through the three four hole and you know it was like uh, somebody just turned the faucet on at that point and you know once we captured that momentum you know it was it was on from there and it was it was amazing to see the shift from a bunch of guys that were dejected and and you know, and and down on themselves to all of a sudden seeing this group uh, with tremendous energy and um, and and tremendous fight. And I've told people since that regional that the one thing I kind of put my finger on, and I, I didn't do it until after the Super Regional in Lubbock, but, you know, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that comeback was able to happen is because that group was so close to one another. Uh, they cared about each other so much that they just didn't want to stop playing. They didn't They didn't want to see it come to an end. And it was a pretty f- uh, special thing to be a part of.
2: So from there, your, your team works its way back through the bracket, ends up, uh, you know, beating Georgia in game six of the regional, to force it game seven. And you, you hand the ball to Mitch Stallings, and it hadn't been the best – the easiest year for Mitch stats wise and Campbell had hit him around a little bit in that, that earlier regional game, but he comes out and he gives you a really gutsy performance in game seven and then throws pretty well in the super regional against Texas tech. What does that say
0: about him? It just confirms what people in our program already knew, which is that Mitch Stallings is a tremendous competitor, loves the ball, in big spots loves the big stage he always wants the baseball you know coming down the stretch in 2018 had been really hard for Mitch you know he he'd been a guy that done so much for our program and was back as a senior he'd been a he'd been a middle reliever he'd been a closer he'd been a starter and and finally worked his way into being a Friday night guy and down the stretch, just had a, a tough six weeks. It uh, seemed like everything he threw found a barrel. But he never gave up on himself. And, and he never made an excuse. And he continued to compete even when things weren't going well. And I can't tell you how much that young man wanted the baseball when we got to that championship game. It was, it was like there was never a doubt. And anybody that was in that dugout could tell you there was never a doubt once we uh, won the first game of that doubleheader who was going to take the baseball in that second game. And even despite the fact that he hadn't uh, had great numbers down the stretch, that he hadn't pitched well against Campbell, our team had a lot of confidence in Mitch Stallings because they knew what type of competitor he was. and, And they knew he would leave it out there on the field for them.
1: Similarly, Griffin Conine had struggled at the start of that regional. I think he struck out in his first six plate appearances, and then he catches fire. Uh, you know what? What enables that, and, and what just makes Griffin Conine the the special hitter that that he is?
0: So it's it's so interesting because that regional was sort of a microcosm of Griffin's twenty eighteen season. You know, he, he came into 2018 with so much pressure on him, so many lofty expectations based on his sophomore campaign at Duke, based on his performance the previous summer in the Cape. And, you know, he really put a lot of pressure on himself and, and was tight uh, dealing with those expectations through the first half of the 2018 season. Really struggled. I remember having to having to sit him down for a game and just give him a day off to kind of clear his head but had really battled through that and had a terrific second half of the year and i mean when i'm when i mean terrific i mean an all american type second half to the 2018 season so the you know what you saw there in that regional was really very emblematic of what he had gone through during the year which is he came in that regional put a lot of pressure on himself to 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 carry us offensively and, and really struggled with that, the weight of those expectations. And, and then uh, kind of freed up as the weekend went on. And uh, second half of that regional, man, he was special. And I'll share with you guys, um, Saturday night we went back and watched the game on, on on social media as a family. That's the first time that I had watched the game um, since since we played it. Uh, that 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 uh, you know that weekend in Athens and he's just a special kid he really is I mean the the things that I appreciate about Griffin uh, have less to do with his baseball ability or his hitting ability but just how unique and well-rounded of a, a, a person he is he's a fun guy to be around he's got such a contagious personality and um, you know he's he's a he's just a really well-rounded person, incredibly bright, incredibly creative, and artistic in, in in his personality. And so you know he's he's a guy that that's really good in a lot of different areas. And it's fun to watch the success he had at Duke, and it's been fun to watch him go on and, and continue that success in the Blue Jays organization.
2: One of the great stories of that weekend is Chris Crabtree and how they were periods of time when he just really took the lineup on his back and, and ran with it. Um, to what extent was that something that you thought was possible for him to do throughout the weekend?
0: Well, we, we, we always knew throughout the freshman year that Chris was going to be a good player, that he was going to have a really positive impact on our program. You know, he had, he had gotten an opportunity uh, just two weekends before when we finished out the regular season at Georgia Tech, and Lowe who had been playing first base, uh, aggravated a thumb injury, and, and Crabtree went in and, and played well um, in, in place of Lowe It's funny, though, you guys. I mean, you know, Michael Rothenberg was the starting DH that day, a, a tremendous player in his own right. But during the lightning and rain delay, his back tightened up on him and just didn't feel like he could get loose enough again to go hit. And that's what necessitated the change. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked a lot as a staff about who was going to be the right fit to go in in that spot. And I'd love to tell you that we, we knew exactly what we were doing by inserting Crabtree in the lineup coming out of the lightning delay. Uh, we didn't, but it worked out. And, and Chris, you want to talk about somebody making the most of an opportunity went in and seized the moment. I've never seen a guy play like that over a four-game stretch. I don't think I've seen it before or since to see a guy just absolutely a carry, a, carry a team the way he did uh, after going into the lineup that Saturday. You know, it's funny. As I was watching the game Saturday night, I remember. So in the, in the championship game versus UGA, uh, late in the game – Georgia intentionally walks Crabtree and Jimmy Heron was in the hole and he's standing there on the steps next to me getting ready to head into the on deck circle and he just looks at me we both kind of smile and he says coach if I'd have told you that Chris Crabtree was going to be intentionally walked in the championship game of regional uh, a week ago what would you have thought and I just kind of looked at him and smiled I said "I I would have bet my house against that happening and it was, it was a sur- surreal moment, but it, it just sort of captured uh, that whole weekend.
1: You, uh, you know, that, that regional goes on to spur the team. It looks like from the outside anyway, you know, you get back to, to supers in 2019 and then this season uh, you were off to that, that great start. Um, does that, what what do you think that winning this regional meant for the program? Does it, did it galvanize, you know, the, the, the program or, or maybe serve to prove that, you know, Duke baseball was not going to be taken lightly going forward? What what, what does that mean uh, for, for the program today?
0: I think you, you hit on a key word. It, it really galvanized the support around our program. And the second word I, I use, would use is validation. You know, it, it validated the hard work that had gone into that point and the fact that, hey, this is a truly talented team that's capable of being successful on a national level.
1: You mentioned at the start of this that you were excited about what 2021 can bring for, for the Blue Devils. What, uh, you know, when you look at, at next year's team, I, I know we're, we're looking ahead a little bit now, but what, uh, what, what has you excited uh, about the, the program's future?
0: Well, you returned three terrific juniors, three guys that you guys had ranked in your top 100 of the uh, college baseball players returning next year, and Cooper Stinson and Jack Carey and Ethan Murray. Uh, Ethan's been such a great player since he earned that starting shortstop position in 2019 had a, a, an All-American freshman campaign. I was I was thrilled with Cooper's development and sort of the next step that he took this year. You know, it got overshadowed a little bit because uh Bryce was so good. But if you look at Cooper's numbers pitching on Saturday, man, he 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 had been really special. I think uh you know sub one ERA. He was four and O oh through four starts and had just really been terrific for us in that Saturday role. So you got a guy with a lot of experience coming back next year. Jack Carey, who had been so good for us in relief as a freshman, had moved into the starting rotation. We'd seen his velocity spike up, uh, you know, into the middle 90s. Uh, He was, I think, 94 versus Florida State, his last start before the season was canceled. And so you got three really good guys who are veterans to build around. Um, we, We like our returning pieces offensively. Yeah, and and we really believe it's a great class of guys coming in. I think we're one of seven programs in uh, all of college baseball to have two Gatorade State Player of the Years in their 2020 incoming class. So a lot to be excited about. You know, there's no question that next year is going to be really unusual, right? Because who can predict? We're a week out from the draft, and who can predict who's going to be on campus and and on what campus uh, they're going to be? this time next year with all the movement that's likely to happen because of the shortened draft. But uh, I know either way, uh, regardless of what happens with the draft, we're, we're excited to, to get back out on the field this fall and get ready for 2021.
1: Well, we're going to be really excited to see that. I, I share enthusiasm about, uh, about the Blue Devils in 2021. I, I wish we could have seen more of this year's team. I wish we could have seen more of Bryce Jarvis in a Duke uniform at the DBAP this spring. But unfortunately, we'll have to wait until, uh, until next spring to see you guys uh, back out there. But we really appreciate you taking the time to, to go back down memory lane with us and, and talk about just the development of, uh, of the program and, and what the 2018 uh, regional meant to you guys.
0: Teddy, it was my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on
1: thank you again to duke coach chris pollard for joining us today on the baseball america college podcast joe when you know you put this on the list um your list of of 10 uh, great games you can watch on on youtube uh, a couple months ago now i uh I don't remember like thinking like, Oh, that'd be a really good one to to dig into. But as, uh, as I was looking through the list recently, I was like, you know, that one actually is a really cool thing because, you know, the game itself isn't the tensest that we've done. Um, but it's a good game and it, it's a really meaningful weekend in, in Duke baseball history. And if you look at the entirety of the weekend, uh, it's incredible. And Chris Pollard talked about, you know, just, you know, we went through it with, you know, how they start losing against Troy getting shut out, despite, you know, some of the impressive bats in the blue devils lineup, that incredible comeback against Campbell, and then them just kind of catching fire from there and and rolling through the losers bracket uh, to knock out Georgia, which was a a top eight overall seed that season.
2: Yeah, really just an incredible run. And, and, Boy, they were – I mean, they were done. That game against Campbell, I shouts to uh, the Bases Loaded crew that we had on uh, last week on the podcast because I remember, and I, I don't know if it was Runes or Shick or maybe it was one of the – you know, they had somebody else in there for a brief period of time, I forget, but but just kind of made a comment like, you know, wow, you know, Duke has really looked flat in this regional. You know, what's going on there? And I do remember – you know, as that ninth inning comeback was was going along, I do remember this was Runes specifically, kind of just reminding viewers because that that ninth inning rally where they score, whatever it was, 11 runs, took so long just in real time because Campbell was cycling through pitchers. It wasn't just like they had one guy wear it. Um, so this was like a long ninth inning, and Runes just kind of had to remind viewers. What we were watching here, because on paper it started to look like a blowout in the other direction, which is not at all what was happening there. But this team was was like I said was was basically done, and you know they, they get shut out in that first game against Troy, and then they scored one run through six against Campbell, and then you know if you take what they did against against Campbell, what they did against Troy, and then against Georgia, they scored let's see thirty one and 16, 47 runs over their final four games in that regional, that was a really, that was a really good offense. Obviously Chris Pollard talked about that. And like the, the proof isn't in, in the pudding there, but, and this is kind of what I say about, you know, regionals, you remember kind of the runs people make. And I think I remember that comeback against Campbell, but, but I think really I'm just going to remember the, the kind of the swings with Duke where it was, oh man, they're about to get eliminated and a while, look at this comeback. And then it was, Okay, but like Troy's pretty good, and they just beat them, so this run can't. Maybe, maybe it, that's just going to be a nice game, and then that'll be the extent of it. And they win that, and they go into the final against Georgia, and you think, okay, well, the jig is up now. Like Georgia has has scored twenty nine runs in two games against Campbell and Troy, and really hasn't, you know, ha- has looked the part. And this is probably it. And then Duke goes and just like in business like fashion wins two games against Georgia. Like it wasn't like Georgia played particularly poorly they scored runs those games were relatively close it wasn't just uh you know Georgia you know got tight and um you know played poorly Georgia was right there and and sure there might have been some tightness you have to remember this that was a Georgia program that, that hadn't really done the hosting thing for a while so it was kind of all new to those players but they uh They just got outplayed by Duke, so that that I certainly will remember. I think that run more than any one specific moment. Although there are little little details here and there we touched on. I remember Mitch Stallings uh, coming back and and pitching in Game Seven. I'll I'll always remember Chris Crabtree because that's a name that I think I'll always remember because he was he was just the best player in this regional offensively, and and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have have thought that coming in. Chris Pollard would not have thought that coming in, and he alluded to as much when we were talking to him there. So uh, just a really fun a really fun team to watch a really fun run and, and certainly worthy of, of having been rewatched here.
1: Yeah. The, uh, that whole regional, the the teams there were, were all very impressive in in, like just the way that the programs were kind of taking steps forward that year. You know, that's Georgia's return to the NCAA tournament after, um, you know, several years of missing. And not just returning, but hosting and being a top eight seed. You know, Duke again is on a you know having a, a historic season for the program. Troy, you know, is not an, a you know very good program, not an annual tournament team, and you know they put together a really nice year, kind of runner up, uh, or they were the runner up in the the Sun Belt tournament and one of the last teams to get in, as I recall. Um, but very deserving of, of getting in. And then Campbell has become, you know, with Coastal moving from the Big South to, uh, to the Sun Belt, Campbell has kind of filled that gap at the top of the conference. And, and also with Liberty moving to, to the A Sun, Campbell has become, um, you know, kind of the team to beat in the Big South over the last few years. But this was kind of like the start of that and you know so it's all of these teams that are just kind of you know put together uh you know peaking in this 2018 season and and building into something and so looking back on that i i think it's a really fun grouping to look at and obviously duke um you know comes out on top and you know really has the most to to prove i i would say just given that they're the uh, you know, a power conference team that, that has historically been you know at the bottom of the ACC and and now they're they're starting to come into their own and and what this regional win meant for them is is pretty significant. And then they went on and, and competed really well in Lubbock uh, in a super against Texas Tech, a place where it's very difficult to win, and they pushed that that super to, to three games.
2: I mean, this is the way life works in in the postseason. Like you just, you get drawn against who you get drawn against, and that's the way it goes. But it's harder to imagine on back-to-back years getting two tougher super regional draws than playing in Lubbock where Texas Tech never loses. Actually, for the top 25 this week, when I was going through underdog regional winners, Sam Houston wins a regional there in 2017, and it's the only time in the Tim Tadlock era that Tech has hosted a round of the postseason and lost. And so people don't people don't win in Lubbock in the postseason. So they get sent there in 18. They get back to a Super Regional in 19, and they get sent to Vanderbilt. And they win a game in both Super Regionals, which suggests that they were right there. And it's just one of those deals where it doesn't work this way, obviously. But if they get two different draws, Dukes and back-to-back College World Series, I mean, maybe. It just really depends. But – they weren't that far off in either year. And so in one, on one side you, you feel for them because it feels like maybe there was an opportunity there that for them to, to really break through and, and get to Omaha. Uh, but on the other hand, it's just such an impressive feat in and of itself. I, I haven't spent a lot of time really lingering on what could have been for these Duke teams, because to your point, these two seasons do really feel like such a crowning achievement. And we talked about this on a recent podcast about, Jobs seem difficult until all of a sudden the right guy's there and suddenly it's not. I mean, it—the extent to which Duke was just not good before this, like, can't really be overstated. Just was really not a factor. There were moments. I mean, Marcus Stroman played here, you know, um, at a time when Duke wasn't wasn't necessarily all that good, and but but the, the team success just wasn't there at all. And Chris Pollard comes along and you know he he gets that thing up and running. Uh, you know, it took a couple of years, but he, but he gets it there. And suddenly, you know, if Chris Pollard tomorrow were, decide, were to decide to, to take a job elsewhere or just decide to move on to another walk of life, um, the next guy who takes this job is just going to be walking into a very, very different job. And so things can change quickly in college baseball. And that's something I try to, I try to remember as I think about the landscape of the sport, that things seem fairly impossible until someone pulls it off and then all of a sudden, we are very quick to assume it's going to be that way in perpetuity all over again, but in a different way. So that's what we've really seen with Duke, which is you and I had this conversation in the top 25 where we go to rank in the preseason or in our most recent one we just put out where we look at Duke and you look at the individual pieces and you're like, I know, okay, they're losing some guys. I'm not really sure about this. Like how much is losing Bryce Jarvis going to be, you know, and then, So inevitably they're ranked a little lower than you might. And then you circle back on them and you're like, but wait a minute, these are, you know, they've been to regionals three or four years. They've been to -to back-to-back supers. The proof is in the pudding here. We're probably underrating Duke. And then we push them up and they almost always still overachieve that. And so I say all that to say the level of turnaround here is just absolutely unbelievable.
1: It it really is impressive what they've built. They're recruiting at a level that I don't think that you would have ever really expected Duke to recruit at. I just updated the recruiting rankings and expanded them to 25 ahead of the draft. And while Duke is not in there, um, they have a really good class. And, you know, I think that this year making the recruiting rankings is going to be harder than ever because it's only a five round draft in another year. I think Duke might, you know, while not be in the rankings before the draft might come out of the draft and, you know, could end up in there. But I don't know that that happens this year because again, five round draft, but the point is they're recruiting at a really high level and they're getting a lot out of the players once they get there. And, and it's just uh it, it's been a very impressive build to see. And, you know, it it, it, it is really interesting to think about the idea that they could have been to Omaha two years in a row. Um, in some respects, it's kind of hard to think about that because they were one of the, last four teams into the tournament last year, but, you know, at the same time another one of those last four teams in according to the committee uh, played for the national title. So yeah, I mean, in, in just a, a slightly different draw Duke potentially winds up in, uh, in Omaha at least once. And, and that would have been an incredible story for the program. They actually have been to Omaha before back in, I want to say, 1968. Um I believe that's accurate 1961 uh, 1961 there it is uh and honestly and if you go if,
2: and 52 if you
1: ever want to look through like what college baseball looked like in the 60s duke 1961 is a fine place to start because i did that probably during the 2018 season because duke is setting all of these doing all these things for the first time and like a lot of them are since 1961 and i like started really like looking back at that and i was like this is college baseball? Like, it's just a totally different arrangement, how I mean, the they, schedule is laid out and everything. It's it's wild. They went 16 and 11 that year, just for, for context. <laughs> it's incredible. Maybe there was a later season in the 60s that they were doing this for the first time since. But it was like uh, they, went, they went a series against one of the ACC schools for the first time. And I, I think I started looking through for that. And I was like, wow, this is – this is how we did college baseball I mean I think you're probably right
2: though because the rest of the 60s for Duke was was not very good I mean they they went 13 12 and one then they had a 15 and 10 but then they go four and 21 eight and seventeen 13 and 12 9 and 20 12 and 19 and 12 18 and one. so you're I mean you're right it's just a very just a very different world though that you can do first since and it, it speaks to how how much the program has struggled historically but also just how different the sport was at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, it's an interesting what if, um, you know. And I, I do think though that as long as Chris Pollard is here at Duke, here in Durham, um, I, I, I think that you know that program is going to be highly competitive in the ACC, and eventually is going to break through to Omaha. It, it's only a matter of time before Duke is at that level, and you know it, it's been really impressive to to watch that happen, and. You know, to your point, you know, programs are, are bad until they're not like he did that at App State, too. You know, he took Appalachian State to a super regional and, you know, Mountaineers haven't done haven't come close to doing that since. Didn't really come close to doing it before. And, and he did that there. And, you know, now he's he's doing the same thing at Duke. And they're two very different schools. I mean, they're in the same general footprint. But, you know, Duke has this national brand. It's this elite academic institution it's playing in the ACC Appalachian state, um, you know, has some national recognition because of what the football program did, but it's not, it's not a school where you're recruiting nationally really. Um, and if you look at the Duke roster right now, they, they are doing a lot of of recruiting from not just in North Carolina. Yes, but also broader. Uh, If you look at Appalachian state's roster back then, it's a, it's a much more localized roster and uh, just a different kind of, of school and a different conference, and and just to, I, I've always been very impressed at the way that Chris Pollard and, and his longtime assistant Josh Jordan have been able to build these two vastly different programs and get them to to kind of historical levels of success. You ever been to Boone? I have not been. I heard it's nice. I've never. I've not been there either. I've only lived in. The it's state supposed for to a few be nice. It's. I've I've considered it a few times over you know my tenure here, but it's it's sort of really annoying length from Durham in terms of driving. Yeah. It's It's way out there. Yeah. It's too far to like go on a Friday night, really, if you're not staying over. Uh, And then it's like, well, am I really going to stay over and boom? Like it's, it's not far enough to make you feel like you need to, but if you're going to see a game that starts at six or seven, you really do need to. And then you have to consider like, is that the best use of my time? And so I, I have not, I've not gone out there, but it's up in the mountains, uh, as the, the the name of the school would suggest. And, uh, it is supposed to be uh, quite pretty out there.
2: Yeah. I thought like a previous version of me, when I was first getting out of grad school, I actually applied for a job at at app state. Um, and was actually kind of hopeful about it because I looked at Boone and was like, Oh, this looks like pretty, pretty nice place. And I, you know, I I'd known that, um, you know that, that app state football was a thing and so like it just might be a kind of a cool place to be but i've I've heard nothing but good things about it so it's it's certainly a place that i'd like to here we are talking about app state on a you know i don't know how we exactly oh we just got here because of obviously what chris pollard did here but um but yeah but so nice place i i certainly looking forward to making it out there at some point
1: yeah absolutely it's uh it's a great baseball state here in North Carolina. It's the, it's the moral of the story. And I, I'm excited to see what Duke has next year. Uh, again, we, we think they're going to be pretty good. Cooper Stinson has uh, a chance to be really special at the front of the rotation. Um, and that'll keep uh, a very good pitching staff very good, even with Bryce Jarvis uh, presumably moving along to pro ball. So we'll, uh, we'll keep, a, keep an eye on them for sure. And you can check out um, you know, our early thoughts on Duke again in that never too early top 25, which you can uh, view at baseballamerica.com. We will be back here on the podcast next week. Uh, we're going two times a week throughout the, uh, the spring here. Uh, the, the first podcast of the week typically is more newsy. Second podcast is this, uh, is this series of us re-watching classic teams and, and classic games. So we'll be back here again next week uh, with with both of those episodes. The draft also starts next week. So um, plenty of content related to that over at BaseballAmerica.com. And I would encourage you uh, to check that all out. And if you subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wh- whatever you're listening to podcasts to, you can find us there. We greatly appreciate that as well. And I know there'll be a lot of, uh, content from, from us and, and from the draft team that relates, uh, you know, both both to college baseball and, and to the draft over the next, uh, week to 10 days as, uh, as we get through, um, what promises to be, uh, a draft unlike any of us, anything any of us have seen before just five rounds and, um, all those limitations on, uh, or the, the, the bonus limitation on undrafted free agents. So we'll, uh, We'll see how that all shakes out, and we'll we'll certainly be analyzing, uh, previewing that as uh, as as we get closer uh, to the draft, and and can see uh, see how how things are playing out. So you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy. BA. Uh, visit online. Subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Those are. I guess those are, are my main endpoints uh, for, for us here on the podcast. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening. Thank you again to Chris Pollard, Duke Head Coach, for joining us here today. Thanks to Joe. I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll see you next week.